Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Josh Hammer Show. So by Friday afternoon, it really did look like the U.S. government was heading towards a shutdown. Sure enough, that is what I and many others were fairly confidently projecting. And it was going to be 12.01 a.m. Sunday morning, a.k.a. midnight Saturday night, that the U.S. government was set to run out of money. And the odds were looking really, really slim because you had a group of Republican rebels, holdouts, whatever you want to call them, led by Congressman Matt Gates, the, shall we say, uh, media attention-loving congressman from the Florida panhandle, the Pensacola area. He has led a group of holdouts that basically said that they were refusing to do anything and everything that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy wanted to do to stave off a government shutdown. Now, a few things here must be said at the outset. First of all, there is nothing inherently problematic with the idea of a government shutdown. I think you have some good government types, some kind of bipartisan Main Street, K Street types, some uh, really just some go along to get along Republicans, the consulting class, who just totally eschew the the idea of a shutdown ever helping Republicans. This is not at all obvious to me. If you go back to the Tea Party era in 2011, it was these exact kind of hardball tactics that led to sequestration was the term used back then, which were very meaningful budget cuts among the most notable budget cuts, frankly, that Republicans have been able to eke out of the federal Leviathan over the past 25 years or so. So I, I think this idea that shutdowns are never helpful is totally false and just belied by a basic survey of history. Additionally, Kevin McCarthy is not someone who can be trusted. If you go back to our show earlier this year when Kevin McCarthy was fighting for his political life back in January when many other establishment conservative political commentators on cable TV, on, on the podcasting radio, you name it, were going all in for Kevin McCarthy at a time when he was taking 15 to 20 ballots to try to secure a speakership on this very show, I criticized them. And I said that Kevin McCarthy actually is a Petri dish creature grown in a lab for the pleasure and for the good fortune of the Republican establishment. He is the classic, classic, canonical consulting class K Street swamp creature. He is deeply conflicted and arguably even corrupt when it comes to big tech. Google, Apple, classic for California congressman, by the way, that's a all too common problem out there given Silicon Valley. So no one here is is innocent and clean. Having said that, and here's the key point, having said that, having acknowledged that government shutdowns can actually historically help the conservative cause, can help Republicans, and that Kevin McCarthy is not to be trusted as a major capital R Republican leader, the question all along here as this thing picked up out of the Labor Day recess over the month of September, we, was the government going to shut down? Was it not going to shut down? The million-dollar question, which I and so many others were asking of Matt Gates 
and his merry band or not so merry band of followers. Folks like Lauren Boebert, you know, who was last seen, shall we say, grasping and being grasped in a dimly lit Denver theater, a, a showing of Beetlejuice that the security footage has made sure has been seen all around the world by now. The million dollar question for this group was, what do you want? Like, literally, what are you trying to accomplish here? Again, the tactic is fine. There is nothing inherently problematic whatsoever with hardball tactics. The entire purported threat of a government shutdown is actually not much of a threat at all. These things are inevitably resolved fairly quickly. Yeah, you'll get some brief furloughs, but nothing bad's going to happen. The only time the shutdowns actually really meaningfully impact your lives is when politicians typically... Democratic Party, big government loving politicians, when they maximally try to inflict pain on we the people so that we open the government back up sooner. I think back to what Barack Obama did when he personally dictated that like the National Park Service, the NPS, would have disproportionate numbers of furloughs. They basically, if I recall, they canceled tourist trips to the top of the Washington Monument during a shutdown. I mean, give me a break. You, you do not have to do that. I mean, you can furlough some idiotic deep state factota mandarins before you go about canceling tourists to the Washington Monument. That was done for one reason and one reason only, which is for the ever expansion and, and engorgement of the Leviathan, which the Democratic Party, of course, is attached to like a cub is attached to her mother's teat. But going back to the present standoff over this past weekend and really over the past few weeks, the question was, Matt Gates, what do you want? Is this literally just personal? Are you actually just trying to topple Kevin McCarthy? Are you actually just trying to make a fool out of Kevin McCarthy? So briefly rewinding back to January of this year, there was one group of House rebels led primarily by the excellent Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, former guest on this very show. That group of rebels back in January was trying to secure meaningful substantive extractions, such as a single member motion to vacate, a return to regular order when it came to appropriation bills, things like that. There was another faction for whom it seemed like there was literally, literally nothing whatsoever substantive that they could possibly get before agreeing to it. And for them, it really did seem like this was deeply personal. And again, I am not a huge fan of Kevin McCarthy, but personal politics on this level, on this level, have no role to play. So what the Gates faction should have been doing, should have been doing, is zeroing in with a laser beam on one, maybe two issues, concrete issues that they would have liked to have secured as a condition for continuing funding the government. The obvious issue, what they clearly should have done if they were going to choose one, was border security. No border security, no funding. That is a compelling message. That is a message that is backed up by the overwhelming majority and popularity of the American people. An ABC News Washington Post poll about eight or nine days ago or so showed that Joe Biden's approval rating on his handling of immigration, 21 to 23 percent of memory serves. That would have been a heck of a good issue for Gates, Boebert and, and co. to pick. Alternatively, they could, maybe, maybe if they were going to try to do more than one issue, already kind of a risky cause, 
they could have tried to zero in on Ukraine funding. And sure enough, the continuing resolution that ended up passing this weekend that funds the government for 45 days does not include funding for Ukraine, which is a good thing in my view, because I have been calling since, a, well, really a very long time now to unwind that conflict. The problem was that this entirely small group of rebels never had their message on straight. This was a subgroup of the House Freedom Caucus. On the contrary, it was actually a lot of House Freedom Caucus members, again, those hardliners who actually care about substance, those folks led like by, by Chip Roy, I think Byron Donalds was part of this crew, the, the, the Florida congressman, they actually convinced House Republican moderates to start on a baseline negotiation with the Senate on an 8%, relatively speaking, budget cut, 8% cuts relative to the baseline budgeting. So in scuttling this deal, this, this is kind of the grand irony here, in, in scuttling this deal for what seems like no other reason other than pure personal spite, what Gates and his fellow travelers have done is they have scuttled an 8% budget cut. And maybe that's self-defeating, or maybe it's not, because what was the point here all along? I mean, was it literally just personal? So that remains to be seen. As we're recording this, the, the latest scuttlebutt out of Washington, D.C., is that House Republicans may file a motion to expel Matt Gates from the entire House Republican caucus. I, I am not necessarily Matt Gates's biggest fan for reasons that we've just discussed here over the past few minutes. That seems to me like 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 slightly too strong medicine, but at some point for Matt Gates, it's put up or shut up. Are you gonna file a motion to vacate the chair? Are you gonna follow through on your convictions or not? That obviously then raises the clear question for Hakeem Jeffries and House Democrats is whether you actually vote to side with Gates to actually kick out Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. I see the pros and cons of that from a Democrat perspective, not necessarily my fight to pick, obviously. I'm more concerned with cleaning our own house here, proverbially and literally speaking, on the Republican side. But for now, for now, not necessarily the end of the world that Kevin McCarthy was able to secure this deal, albeit it's it wasn't the deal many of us wanted. But if you're trying to blame someone, it looks like it's Matt Gates more than Kevin McCarthy here. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. basic argument on one side is deal with the devil you know, Kevin McCarthy is who Democrats know. On the other side of the equation, Democrats might like to kind of just muddy up the waters and see lots of Republican infighting even more than Republicans have already had. We will see how that plays out over the next few days or so at the most. But speaking of the Democratic side of the aisle and moving from the lower chamber, the House, to the upper chamber, the Senate, there was a death over the the weekend, that was, of course, Diane Feinstein at the age of 90 years old. She has been a senator from, from California for almost as long as I have been born, going back to the early 1990s. She was a long-serving mayor of San Francisco before that. Very much 
kind of a, a queen of the San Francisco Bay Area Democratic Party political establishment. I mean, if you had to name two iconic San Francisco Democrats over the past 25, 30 years, the first two that come to my mind are Diane Feinstein and Nancy Pelosi. Feinstein has been battling a, a lot of illnesses for, for a while now. She had a bad case of shingles. She missed a, a lot of time. Her staff assured us she was fine. Everyone with their own eyes and ears could see that she was clearly not fine. And this raises all sorts of interesting questions going back to a topic that we've discussed on this show about American gerontocracy and how we ultimately get ourselves either culturally or via legal fiat and actual legislation, if need be, to actually end this rule by old farts, rule by geriatrics in America. So lots of interesting strands of conversation there. But for present purposes, let's take it in a slightly different direction here. So under California's laws, under California's laws, it is the governor who is tasked with making an interim appointment when it comes to who is going to fill out the rest of this Senate term, this Senate term for Dianne Feinstein. Bear in mind that there is going to be an election for this next fall. And there are already a lot of notable California Democrats who have decided to toss their hat into the ring for this. Going to be people like Adam Schiff, people like Barbara Lee, Lots of uh, lots of others who have been floated about as possibilities as well. So whoever who you know whoever might hop in here for this temporary appointment from Gavin Newsom is not necessarily guaranteed to last longer than a year or so, but it's still important. The U.S. Senate's only a hundred votes. California happens to be a pretty important state here, and Gavin Newsom, it turns out, has someone in mind, and the person that he has in mind is named LaFonza Butler, someone who I frankly have never heard of, but apparently I should have heard of if I were following pro-abortion politics a little more closely, because LaFonza Butler is the president of Emily's List. Emily's List is one of the most radical pro-abortion groups out there. They exist for the exclusive reason of electing pro-abortion Democrats to office, typically pro-abortion female candidates to office. LaFonza Butler happens to be a black woman, which is what Gavin Newsom told us that he would do. He said that he was going to nominate a, a black woman for this seat. And sure enough, that is what he has done. First of all, my kind of a initial thought of this is this strikes me as being very similar to what Joe Biden did when Justice Stephen Breyer announced that he was stepping down. So if you recall, in early 2022, Justice Stephen Breyer, who's not a centrist, but was one of the less crazy liberals, you might say, on the U.S. Supreme Court, announced he's retiring. Joe Biden immediately confirms he's going to uphold his 2020-era campaign promise to nominate a black woman. He nominates Katanji Brown-Jackson. Notwithstanding the fact that black women, if I recall the exact statistic, are 2%, literally 2% of the national lawyer pool. So, Nice job, dude, limiting your job search for an extraordinarily important seat to 2% of the national population. I would argue that we are already arguably seeing the the fruits of that when it comes to Katanji Brown-Jackson's sometimes not-so-great writings, to put it mildly, including her outrageous, outrageous Ibram X. Kendi critical race theory bloviating in her dissent in the affirmative action cases this summer— in any event, that's what I first thought of when we found out Sunday evening that Gavin Newsom was apparently appointing LaFonza Butler to the U.S. Senate. There is one glaring, obvious problem here 
when it comes to LaFonza Butler's prospective U.S. Senate seat from California. And it has to do with the fact that she doesn't actually live up here in the state of California. I mean, you, you, you would think that someone would have told this to Gavin Newsom before he went ahead and announced this to the world or at least leaked it as a trial balloon. You know, Matthew Foldy, my friend who ran for Congress, unfortunately lost from Maryland last year, he pointed out that at the time that LaFonza Butler's name was leaked as the next senator from California, her literal Twitter bio said Maryland as her location. And sure enough, a cursory look at her LinkedIn profile indicates that Silver Spring, Maryland is lo- is her location, which makes a lot of sense because, again, she's the president for Emily's List, which is a Beltway lobbying organization. So we, off the bat, have a constitutional problem here because there's an excellent blog post over at the Vol Conspiracy by a Harvard Law professor by the name of Stephen E. Sachs pointing out that the explicit constitutional language on this, it's Article 1, Section 3, Clause 3 of the U.S. Constitution. It reads, quote, no senator, excuse me, no person shall be a senator who shall not have attained to the age of 30 years and been nine years a citizen of the United States and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state for which he shall be chosen. So the key word here is inhabitant. You have to be an inhabitant of that state at the time of your election. So there's a few kind of legal ways to break this down. The the first point that some of, of the kind of law professors are now discussing is, you know, whether this even applies to Alfonso Butler because she's not elected, she's being temporarily appointed. But it seems like she is being elected because the people of California via their laws have vested this prerogative in the governor here. Then is she actually an inhabitant? Well, I mean, she has strong California ties. She spent a lot of time there. But is she actually domiciled there to use the traditional common law language? Well, no. I mean, she's literally not. She's in Maryland. So very, very interesting potential stuff here. Uh, the U.S. Senate actually gets to decide on this. The, the U.S. Senate itself is ultimately going to be the judge and jury when it comes to this question, if this is ultimately how this thing goes through. This is not going to be justiciable to the U.S. Supreme Court. Rather, the Senate is the ultimate arbiter itself of its own internal criteria and when it comes to rejecting members' qualifications, things like that. So it could be a fascinating, fascinating mini-constitutional debate for the legal nerds out there, such as myself, And the other question this raises, of course, is Gavin Newsom. So Gavin Newsom last week was everywhere. He was talking with Sean Hannity after the second Republican presidential debate, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. Curious decision, first of all, for for Sean to to bring on the extremely liberal Democratic governor of California in the post-debate coverage there on Fox News, I thought. But holding that aside... Gavin Newsom is clearly waiting in the wings should Joe Biden be hospitalized or should, God forbid, something even worse than hospitalization befall our senile octogenarian commander in chief. How does this play into Gavin Newsom's ambitions? Well, one thought, it was kind of a it was a Friday afternoon news dump. I think it was two Fridays ago, so a week and a week and a half ago or so now that Newsom in the twilight hours of a Friday afternoon didn't try. He vetoed a piece of legislation 
that would have infringed on parental rights when it comes to transgender children, which was considered a bit of a more pragmatic, centrist move to the middle, something perhaps a little savvy if you're trying to make a national run of things. So maybe this extremely intersectional pick, oh, by the way, LaFonza Butler is actually not just a black woman, she's also just a lesbian, because apparently just being a normal black woman is not sufficient in today's Democratic Party. You literally have to be a black black female lesbian, can't make this stuff up. This is The Josh Hammer Show. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So the second Republican presidential primary debate was last Wednesday evening at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library outside Los Angeles. Ratings for this one did dip a little bit, so don't be too hard on yourself if you missed this snooze fest of a debate. It was really just a, a an, an absolutely appalling and, and horrific affair, frankly. As a political junkie, someone who does this for a living, having to suffer through this debate was not anywhere near one of the more pleasurable experiences I've had following American politics, to put it mildly here. The moderation for this debate, frankly, was just abysmal. There was a Univision journalist who I had never heard before called Ilya Calderon, who was co-moderating this thing along with Fox News' Dana Perino and Fox Business's Stuart Varney. I don't know who the hell Ilya Calderon is. I certainly know that I never want to hear that name or hear anything from her ever again, literally ever. Her questions were essentially DNC spoon-fed questions. She asked all sorts of stuff playing into stereotypes, frankly, about Univision listeners and, and viewers, all, lots of questions about illegal immigration and Amnesty. I can't remember if it was her, Stuart Varney, who asked this absolutely ridiculous question to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis about this faux manufactured controversy that Kamala Harris herself started about whether the educational standards in Florida have good things to say about slavery. Like, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. No, they obviously do not. This is a BS controversy all along. The moderators, moderators played right into it. They also took by my clock, roughly 16 to 17 minutes to actually let Ron DeSantis speak at this debate. Recall that Donald Trump was was not at this debate. He was off in Michigan in an auto parts manufacturer. A little weird as well, because he was Trump, what that was. Trump was purporting to stand with the UAW, with the union workers who have been striking against the big three auto manufacturers, but the auto parts manufacturer, the the physical warehouse that Trump went to speak at as his excuse for, for not attending this debate was actually not even a, a union a unionized company. So very, very, very weird there. The, the Detroit Free Press, the local publication there, had a, a good story, some good reporting on this very topic. Anyway, going back to California, DeSantis is in the middle of the stage. There are seven people there. He is the only one who is even remotely relevant when it comes to who might get the Republican nomination. And the moderators wait 16 to 17 minutes to let him speak. So uh, for the life of me, I don't know what that was possibly about. You had total jokers speak before 
DeSantis did. I think Chris Christie might have even gotten a word in, uh, of course, after he was getting a ham sandwich in, but he got a word in before, before Ron DeSantis even spoke there. My only thought there as a possibility is, you know, maybe the RNC, maybe Ronna McDaniel, who was the chairwoman of the RNC, she might be so compromised and so in it for Trump that that is potentially affecting her internal conversations and her attempts to dictate the flow of conversation with the moderators. And recall that Ronna McDaniel herself owes her job to Donald Trump. So it wasn't that long ago. It was back in January, February, so that there was a real fight at the top of the RNC. And Ronna McDaniel was fighting for her job. She was facing viable challengers like the excellent conservative lawyer in San Francisco named Harmeet Dillon. And it was Trump who not so subtly, not not so behind the scenes, was lobbying Republican National Committee men to vote to secure Ronna McDaniel's sinecure atop the RNC. Ronna McDaniel, of course, who has now presided over three elections, 2018, 2020, and 2022, she has lost, Republicans have lost all three of those elections, but that didn't stop Ron McDaniel from giving herself a nice salary raise over the past month or so. So she really owes Trump some big favors. So maybe that was going on in this particular debate. The moderators just generally did a terrible job, frankly, of controlling the conversation. Way too much talking over each other, too timid, no ability whatsoever to control the room. The whole thing was just a total mess. But as we start to look at who Nonetheless, all those massive caveats aside, as we start to look at who performed well and who did not perform well, it, it seemed like the two people who the focus groups on the post-debate polling indicated did the best were also on my vantage point who did the best, which were Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, the former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and former governor of South Carolina. She's now had two strong, you might say polarizing, but strong debate performances in a row. She's been very cocksure and, and sure of herself, a little belittling to others at times. Her style either kind of works for you or it doesn't. I have no issue whatsoever with Nikki Haley's style. I have lots of issues with her particular substance. I think that she is a total outmoded throwback to the 1984 Reagan-Bush-style boomer conservatism that we often rail against on, on this particular show. But the polls do show that she has now had strong performances in the first two debates, and the polls are starting to reward her in New Hampshire, where the real clear politics average of polls in New Hampshire sometimes has her really uh, second place, actually, ahead of DeSantis, ahead of Chris Christie. She is oftentimes second place there in New Hampshire, still trailing considerably in most of the other states. DeSantis himself had another strong performance. He was the consensus debate winner. I wouldn't say it was a knockout performance. That's frankly just not Ron DeSantis's style. He's not the kind of guy who's going to get up there with a Trump-level personality and just torch everyone with a flamethrower off the stage. But it was a good performance. I mean, he was able to talk about his record in Florida. He was actually challenged on his record on Florida when it comes to things like insurance, when it comes to... Uh, other issues as well there, actually oil and gas extraction. That was a very kind of bizarre attempt, attempted hit from, from Nikki Haley. And I thought DeSantis explained himself and defended his own policies in Florida extremely well. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It really was not that long ago before Donald Trump, who, by the way, moved to Florida during Ron DeSantis's governorship. It wasn't that long ago that before he started hammering Florida with all he got, that what's been happening here in Florida 
was, at least was um, until five minutes ago, the quintessence, everyone said, of what a red state should do when it comes to legislation, when it comes to leadership. So DeSantis definitely got some good lines in when it comes to that. And more importantly, more importantly, he finally started to take out the knives a little bit when it comes to the man in front of him in the polls. I'm speaking here, of course, about Trump himself. He finally, finally started taking some well-calculated swings at him when it came to Donald Trump's out-of-control spending in his final year in office when the pandemic came, his effectively letting Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks and the COVID biomedical security state run the show for the final year of his presidency. He finally got a, a word in edgewise against Trump when it came to Donald Trump's absolutely horrific comments about the abortion issue. So just to kind of Rewind a little bit here. It was fairly recently that Trump did an interview with Kristen Welker at Meet the, on Meet the Press, NBC's Sunday show, when he was asked to react to the six-week pro-life laws, the fetal heartbeat bills that have passed in Florida, Iowa, Georgia, Ohio, among others, in fairly recent memory. And Donald Trump said that it was a, quote, terrible thing. Apparently, protecting unborn children when they have a heartbeat is a terrible thing in the eyes of former President Trump, which is a morally disgusting thing to say and is a doubly or triply more disgusting thing to say for a man who explicitly campaigns repeatedly for the pro-life vote, who has the temerity, the chutzpah, to call himself the greatest thing that ever happened to the pro-life movement. So DeSantis properly shot back at Donald Trump defending his own signing of the six-week heartbeat law. Notably, DeSantis also came out in support of, of a 15-week national backstop when it comes to pro-life legislation at the national level, uh, thus joining at least Tim Scott and Mike Pence when it comes to that. Looking at some of the other candidates, it seems like Vivek Ramaswamy, the absolute charlatan and, and fraud of the 38-year-old egomaniac, he, he has seen something of, of a slump in his enthusiasm. I think that is a well-deserved slump, his moment for now seems to have passed. Really, the question going forward is, does any of this matter? Does any of this matter? I mean, the next Republican debate is going to be November 8th, I think the date is, in my neck of the woods in Miami, Florida. Who is going to drop out? Who is going to exit that debate stage between this past debate and then? We had seven candidates on stage for this second debate in California. So many of them are just completely and utterly irrelevant. Like, what in the world is Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, doing on that stage? What in the world, yes, is Chris Christie, despite his hilariously pathetic attempts to get these one-liners in, the, the Donald Duck quip, for those of you who watched the debate, what is he doing on that debate stage? For that matter, what is Mike Pence doing on that debate stage? Mike Pence, when he's not trying to bore us, bore us to sleep to make us snore in our absolute yawning boredom. He sounds like a, a, a replay of a 1982 political style campaign. I mean, talk about a man who was just woefully, woefully out of touch with the political moment and he has the polling to match it. He should be off the stage there. So the RNC, if they have any other motive than just shilling for Trump, because the RNC, the Republican National Committee, they are the ones who ultimately set the rules for qualifying for these debates, what are they doing if they do not meaningfully elevate and up the qualifying criteria for the next debate by the time this thing comes to Florida 
in early November, I would like to see three to four candidates on that debate stage really at the most. You assume that Trump's not going to be there. I think he's already said he's not going to be there. You know, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, I guess Vivek, because he was polling decently highly relatively, relatively recently, and maybe Tim Scott or Mike Pence, but like no more than that whatsoever. And really, even in that scenario, you, you choose one of Tim Scott or Mike Pence, and both of them, frankly, are maybes. The point here is that if you are not actively trying to winnow the field, then at this point, what are you doing? Trump is still totally dominating the real clear politics voting average. Yes, it is a slightly closer race. In Iowa, we had Steve Dace, the Iowa-based commentator on this very show recently to break down Iowa for us. Steve continues to be optimistic that DeSantis is going to prevail in the Iowa caucuses and that that will actually propel him to the nomination. But with all due respect to my friend Steve, who knows his own state way, way better than I do, it would be nice it would be nice if we started to see some more movement in the polls, some more field consolidation, because as of now, as of now, it's starting to look a heck of a lot like 2016, where Donald Trump was coasting by with pluralities, not outright majorities in each and every state until April. I'm not sure if, if Trump got his first 50 plus percent majority until April 2016. It was, I believe, in New York State, actually, or, or was right around then. And then, of course, he basically locked it up in Indiana after May 3rd when Ted Cruz bowed out. If you don't want a repeat of 2016, and if, especially if you were one of these lesser polling, lower polling candidates, a Doug Burgum, Chris Christie, you should, you should really be following the model here set by Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, of whom I am not a particularly big fan at all. But he set the right model by bowing out of this thing after totally and completely failing to generate any momentum. If you care about the party, if you care about the movement, if you care about the, if you care about the country, maybe start asking yourself whether Francis Suarez, whatever your concerns with him may be, and I have many, whether he has set the right model for you to follow. Get out of the race. Senate unanimously passes formal dress code. So we recently discussed how Chuck Schumer, the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, had instructed the sergeant at arms for the Senate to cease enforcing that chamber's longstanding dress code. And he did this for one reason and one reason only, which is to appease the slob, the slovenly adult, the Ivy League educated idiot who lived and mooched off his parents financially until he was 49 years old. If I have the number correctly there, that would be John Fetterman, the freshman senator from Pennsylvania, who is known for many things, not just for being both physically and mentally adult after his unfortunate stroke and his bouts of depression earlier this year, which incidentally, we of course wish him nothing but the best for. But other than that, he has perhaps been become best known for dressing like an act, an, an absolute bum, a, a total loser, for lack of a better term, someone who tra who trances around, who walks around the corridors of the U.S. Senate wearing a hoodie, shorts, sneakers, really kind of disgusting stuff. He's trying to like act like a cool working man kind of dude here. What a what an implicit kind of middle finger, frankly, to poor people that you think you have to dress like that in order to appease them. You should be trying to work up standards, not dumb down. Anyway, we talk about that 
at great length recently here. And I am very pleased to report that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is maybe the only genuine moderate of the entire Senate Democratic caucus, he's got a very interesting reelection fight next fall if he indeed decides to run for reelection. He introduced a resolution to bring back the dress code to essentially override Chuck Schumer's casual telling to the sergeant at arms to stop enforcing this. And that thing passed unanimously, actually. I, I don't know if literally all 100 voters, 100 senators voted for it, but apparently there were no dissenting votes. That is a, a rare, very good thing, a rare, unambiguous piece of good news. The reason, again, that this is important is because the left is trying to shove down your throat this sock, this youth soccer participation trophy mentality where mediocrity is to be rewarded, where there is no such thing as good and bad. Everyone is a winner. That is garbage. It is terrible lessons for our youths, our children, our progeny above all. And I am happy to see that the Senate has brought back the formal dress code. Good for you, Joe Manchin. Can diversity and kids' fun coexist? So there's a funny little write-up from a website that I'd never heard of called thegoodmen.com. By the way, when I say funny, I, I mean harrowing and horrific, but kind of funny because it's so ardently ridiculous. And it's entitled Eight Foolproof DEI Parenting Ideas for Weaving Cultural Awareness into Household Routines Like Taco Night. Taco Night. I mean, you can't make this up. Anyway, here is the number one suggestion. Quote, start by giving your child a piece of paper and colored pencils or crayons. Ask them to draw a diversity flower or a train or whatever they're into. This will give you a good sense of where they stand on diversity. So that, that apparently is the first step here. Listen to this. This is the final. This is the eighth step. It pertains to clothes. They say, quote, wear clothing from another culture. Even when you're just wearing your robe, mention that American robes originated from Japanese kimonos. Or if you're wearing a raincoat or a poncho, remember to call out South American waterproof clothing. Well, you know, the last time I checked, wasn't this what the left referred to as, quote unquote, cultural appropriation? I thought it was cultural appropriation for white Americans and usually white heterosexual male Christians, because those are oftentimes the most discriminated against subset of the U.S. population these days. I thought that it was cultural appropriation for white American male Christians to dress up like other cultures, maybe even to eat other cultures. There was this whole tempest in a teapot at Yale a handful of years ago about a, a Native American, American Indian party. I mean, this crap has gotten so utterly off the rails that it is becoming just increasingly impossible to even know what they, what they think anymore. They're changing on a dime. Is it cultural appropriation? Is it a good thing? I mean... There's no internal consistency here whatsoever. They are just spouting off whatever whatever dumb crap comes out of their anus on any day ending in Y. Royal Navy personnel told to introduce themselves with pronouns to raise trans awareness. Members of the Royal Navy, oh my God, members of the Royal Navy in the UK have been told to introduce themselves with their pronouns ahead of meetings, according to official guidance. The guidance is urging staff to, quote, keep constantly educating and researching about trans matters. You know, maybe this is why the British Empire barely exists anymore. Maybe this is why the British nation state is barely holding on after being one of the world's most important nations and empires for hundreds, if not thousands of years. 
You know, I was thinking about Britain actually just a week ago or two as well, because in Parliament in Westminster in London, they are now coming very hard after Russell Brand and Rumble, Rumble being the pro-free speech video platform that essentially exists to air stuff that, among other things, YouTube will not run. And the British Parliament has been coming after Rumble trying to demonetize Russell Brand or basically trying to strong arm them to demonetize Russell Brand because of what we discussed in this show recently, which are these newfound allegations that maybe he did this and did that to women from years ago. It's kind of this return of the Me Too movement. The point here is Britain, Britain, which gave the world so much, the common law tradition, all the the beautiful writings of such thought-provoking men as as Sir William Blackstone, Edmund Burke, John Locke, I, 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 Hobbes, I mean, John Selden. I could go on and on of all that Britain has given the world. And they're now doing this to rumble when it comes to Russell Brand, and they're now telling their Navy, which was once the most important Navy in the world, to use transgender pronouns. Unfreaking believable Finally, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez expected back in Manhattan court for bribery case. So he's pleaded not guilty to this bribery charge. He was released on a $100,000 bond. This pertains to roughly half a million dollars or so in literal hard cash and literal gold bars that Egyptian government-affiliated officials apparently have bribed Bob Menendez with. He is facing a ton of calls from his colleagues in the Senate Democratic Caucus to step down. I have no objection whatsoever to Bob Menendez resigning. In this case, this is not the first time that Bob Menendez has been in the news for corruption. He was actually previously indicted in the middle of the last decade. So this is not new to Bob Menendez, but it's worth pointing out that the extremely cynical reason that Senate Democrats, his colleagues, and indeed the congressman from New Jersey are increasingly calling for Menendez to step down has nothing to do with the severity of these allegations, which seem extremely credible, to be clear, of these allegations of bribery. Rather, what they are calling for him to step down is they are doing that exclusively, exclusively on self-serving political grounds because the polling that I have seen thus far shows that Menendez has been so wounded by this that that Senate seat could actually be up for grabs in blue New Jersey if he hangs on there. So I have no particular love for this man. I am not necessarily wishing him the best or anything like that, but this is currently Democrats' mess to sort out for themselves. This is The Josh Hammer Show.